Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 15. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Well, I'm pleased to have on the show today Paul Callan. He's a retired U.S. Marine Corps colonel with nearly 30 years of experience at the CEO level, the chief operating officer level. He's been executive VP and a vice president of supply chain management. He has combat experience both in Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, he has education level at the postgraduate level. He's got a passion for leading, mentoring, and coaching, and his goal is to help people and organizations better understand the challenging, lifelong, but essential journey to becoming authentic and resonant leaders. He's a fellow Marine officer, so I'm excited to have him on the show today, and I'm looking forward to talking to, to him and about his course that he developed called the Callan Course. Paul, how are you today? Good morning, Rich. Great to talk to you. Everything's good out here in uh, sunny Southern California, and uh, I, I uh, likewise look forward to talking to you and talking about the thing that uh, we share a common passion for, which is leadership. Yeah. So, yeah, you don't have to rub in about the San Diego weather. You know, it's going to have a winter storm here in Wichita. So, uh, enough with the nice weather comments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I love. Yeah, I was stationed in Southern California, and and I miss it. I'm jealous that you're out there in sunny San Diego. But tell me a little bit, Paul, about how you got involved and how you become passionate about uh, leadership and and the importance of leadership. Yeah, sure, Rich. Um, and I suppose, uh, like any of us that uh, that are in it now at this point of our life, if we kind of look back over the uh, the arc if you will, of our development, um, you start to see um, patterns that um, actually existed uh, early in our life. For example, for me, um, uh, my early involvement with sports, played sports uh, obviously throughout my youth, high school, played football in college, and um, though at the time I probably didn't realize it, I think uh, when I look back on it now, you know, what attracted me to what you might call the sport ethos, uh, the ethic, if you will, um, was, was that... Uh, kind of somewhat mysterious thing of what is it that allows you know a group of disparate people to come together um, and pursue um, you know a common cause, which sports is, you know the team, the team effort, and um, and then of course uh, when I decided to join the Marine Corps out of college, um, again at the time I probably didn't realize what was it that was calling to me, but I think it was a similar ethos that I had found, had found, if you will, through my experience as, uh, as an athlete and playing sports, which was to be part of something um, that was challenging and uh, part of something that was uh, an experience that would, you know, would take me um, to a level of experience that was you know, beyond my own individual capacity to do. Uh, and then, of course, uh, in a blink of an eye, 27 years went by uh, in the Marine Corps and um, you know, just the immersion in a culture that, uh, amongst all other things, demanded excellence uh, in leading and uh, um, leadership excellence. And um, when I decided to retire uh, about two years ago, and I was trying to uh, frame up in my own mind, if you will, what I wanted to do with the second half of my life, that's what I thought of it as a, a new phase uh, and um, kind of biologically just just passing over the 50-year threshold, I figured uh, I better better start thinking about what I want to do with myself. And 
I couldn't come up with a better answer other than um, to continue to pursue uh, giving back and to contributing in the into the thing that I felt most passionate about, which was leading and um, trying to help others uh, divine a path, if you will, to uh, to this art and science that we refer to as leadership. So I guess you could say it was a long developing, long simmering interest in um, in a deep, passionate interest in leadership that um, has manifest itself uh for me personally you know throughout my life and throughout these different endeavors but it's it's something that i guess you would say um uh, is a calling um but a calling that i wanted to um you know to capitalize not for my own self-interest but from the standpoint of um trying to take everything that i think i've mastered at this point in my life and uh give it back give it to others to help them you know it's interesting you said a couple things that you said there you know, you wanted to be a part of something special, bigger than yourself. And I, it's funny how you ask, and I know it's, you know, the Marine Corps has been our experience, but I know it's it's true for a lot of the branches of the military or, or anybody that goes down um, a challenging, unique path. You know, why did you do what you did? And, and invariably, the number one answer seems to be, I wanted to be part of something bigger than myself. And have you found that true for the, the Marines that you've led and, and the experience and, and even the, the time that you've been out of the Marine Corps in organizations? Isn't that the key, that people want to be a part of something special? Absolutely. Uh, you know, of, of the things that are um, crystal clear to me now at this point in terms of my life, we're no longer the, you know, what you might call um, concepts or theories. They're, they're truths, if you will, and there's, there's a handful of them, what I think, that are that are transcendent when it comes to leadership, but that is one of them that I believe that um, that what we all desire, what we all pursue, whether we consciously understand it or not, is to have an experience that transcends our own personal limitations. And I, when I teach, I often use the, the metaphor of climbing a hill, and I, and I actually use that visually because when you think about our own Marine Corps experience, so much of what we did physically was climbing hills, but it was really a great metaphor for um, what you might call the transformational process of moving beyond your own self-interest into common interest. And what what I believe strongly, in other words, what, what we all seek, both on an individual level and a group level, is to have an experience that gives us a couple of a core um, elements. One is a noble purpose, um, something that is just inherently good. Um, number two is that the, whatever we do pursue, that is, it is challenging. And I always say that uh, none of us wake up in the morning wanting to be mediocre. Um, sometimes there's a little stimulus that's involved, a little prodding, if you will, which may be somebody else's modeling it, but we all want to pursue something that is challenging, that requires us to step out of, if you will, our, our daily uh, limitations and pursue something um, that's bold and that's grand in design. Um, and third is we want that experience um, that transcends, again, our own personal limitations. And I believe the only way you ha- you achieve that is through group achievement, through common purpose and common achievement. And therefore, going back to that hill climbing metaphor that I used before, as I, I often say this when I'm teaching, is um, picture yourself at the base of 
a very challenging mountain or hill, just something that, that initially would be almost impossible for you to climb. And then think about conditioning yourself through training and preparation and practice, um, the slow uh, ascent of that mountain. It may take you months to be able to climb that and say that you did, and you did it individually. You would feel a level of satisfaction, uh, and you would feel some, some joy, if you will, from having achieved that that challenge for climbing that hill. But then conversely, now create the same situation and imagine yourself doing that with a group of people and standing at the top of that hill now, not by yourself, but now with, say, 10 or 20 people and how fundamentally different that experience is having achieved and overcome that challenge with a group of people. So I absolutely believe that one of the fundamental uh, aspirations that we have is to have that kind of collective experience, that group achievement, but I conversely think that that is so critical for leaders to create for people. A leader creates that uh, creates that atmosphere. The leader is the one that creates the conditions uh, and pulls that out of people, uh, but it, it is the magical thing that once it's present and once that um, uh, the experience of group achievement comes into play. That's where the real release of passion and the real release, the willing release of passion and talent comes, where people willingly give the best of themselves because they're now giving it for a common purpose and a common good. Yeah, you're hitting on something that's so critical. I know in my experiences in the civilian corporate world, where we spend a lot of energy, a lot of effort, and we're and not all, but in a lot of cases, what was prevalent in my experiences is like, well, how do we get people to do these extraordinary events, these long hours, these, you know, the the difficult travel, you know, and that's the tendency seems to be, well, let's focus on giving them more money, more incentives. Um, let's use coercion. Let's use threats. Let's let's use intimidation. Those none of those things work. And what you're hitting on is if you're right, as a leader, if you can find out, I don't care if you're making plastic bird feeders out of China, if you're running a hotel, if you're you know, certifying aircraft to go fly, if you're making Coca-Cola, it doesn't matter. If the leader can tap into what the purpose is and, and, and it's aligned with the values of what they stand for, people will go to the ends of the earth to drive towards that purpose if they feel like they're part of something special. And I can't tell you how many leaders I've come across or, or at least leaders in title who feel like it's all about the money or the incentives and they never focus on that purpose. Have you noticed that in your consulting and in, in the time you've been out of the Marine Corps? Absolutely. I think that what we're talking about, um, which um, the way I present it as a, um, is both a concept, it, it's real, but I, I think like any, like any part of the art of leadership, you first have to understand the dynamic of what's going on is what I call ethos, or what we would have called ethos. We, we understood that, uh, obviously, very poignantly as Marines because uh, I firmly believe that the Marine Corps is founded amongst all of the service most uh, most principally and most clearly on an, on ethos, which mm-hmm. is, if you will, almost you know an idea, a transcendent idea. Um, but what I believe is that it's the most difficult thing to both define and then install in an organization, but at the end of the day, it's the most important thing you'll ever do because just like you're saying is that you can hire and you can employ people based on material uh, considerations, and I'm not suggesting that they're not of importance to people, their salary, their benefits, uh, 
the climate of the workplace, uh, etc. But ultimately, they are not sufficient. And in other words, and I use that um, I use that uh, phraseology earlier about what is it that trips a person's willing release. In other words, their their will willing release of their very best in themselves um, to give to. Uh, a group, and it is never a material thing that trips that. Yep. You know, you can get a percentage of performance out of that, but what ultimately gets maximum um, performance is the willing release, and I believe that the only way that that's achieved is when the person makes an individual connection with the ethos of the organization. In other words, and I think ethos answers a couple of key things that go to the heart of um, feeling that you matter and that you have purpose, which is who are we, why do we exist, and what do we do? And if an organization can provide the answer to those things, and again, they go back and they, and they answer those other key questions that we mentioned earlier, that it's noble, that it's challenging, that it's honorable, then that is what, once that personal connection is made and the individual really believes that they have a role in contributing to that ethos, that is what ignites Again, that willing um, giving of the best of yourself to the organization, minus it, then you, you only get suboptimal performance. And I've seen that in every case that I've been. And I think it is the most fundamental challenge that most organizations face is, is that that is what you might call, that's cultivating type work. It's hard work. It's, yeah. it's foundational work. And many leaders and many organizations don't go there because it's hard. It's easier actually to go and try to attack the material aspects of satisfaction and performance because they're more tangible, but ultimately they're failing or they're limiting because they don't get that that optimal release of human energy and human talent. Yeah. No, that's good stuff. I'm curious to what you think your answer to this is, 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 um, you know, you look back at your Marine Corps career, and you start as a junior officer all the way up to you know the top level as a as a as a commanding officer. What advice would you give to maybe those middle level managers? And you know, from your Marine Corps experience, and, and even out there in the you know the civilian corporate world, most leadership, and if not all, the important leadership really does happen from the middle and below. What right. advice would you give to that? middle manager, that, that someone that's in an organization that isn't involved, that, who doesn't get the ethos, and, and they don't have the most ideal C-level type leadership going on, what's the best way, and I, I, I know I experienced this in the Marine Corps, and you probably did too, you didn't have the best commanding officer. And what can you do as a leader to be as successful as you can be both for yourself and for the organization? Any advice? Yeah, I, I, that's a great uh, question, Rich, and it's one. It's interesting because uh, in in a lot of the work that I do, it's it's actually one of the most common questions I get asked, which is just like just to paraphrase it, just to frame it up, is what do I do as like you said, either a mid level or a junior executive or leader when when I look above me at my senior leadership, I'm not seeing models for me or our people, you know that that highly principled, resonant style of leadership, and the way I always answer it is that no matter where you are and no matter what your scope of responsibilities is, you, you have to accept that you you are still making an impact. Now, that impact may only be five people in a company of 500, but nonetheless, you have an opportunity to influence those five people 
from a perception of leadership, from a modeling of leadership, and from an experience of leadership that will, in a sense, shape them for the rest of their lives. I used to call it in the military, uh, excuse me, when we're in the Marine Corps, is that I used to call it defend your own fighting hole, meaning that your fighting hole is your span or scope of interest at that, or influence at that particular time. And in reality, that is your only thing that you can influence, but you have to accept that that can be significant because of the fact that you're you're going to have an impact on human beings in that time. But what I always try to teach when I'm when I'm acknowledging that reality that that through a chain of command you may not get expert leadership from top to bottom, there may be gaps, is I start with this basic premise is A is that every minute of every day you as a leader, you are always influencing. You are you're alive, you are on the record and you're on stage, you know, as we know, people are looking at you, people are looking to you for influence. And then given that reality, I try to make this next point the most critical is that all great leadership starts with self-leadership. And right. self-leadership starts with self-mastery. So that given that, if, if whatever your span of control is or whatever your span of influence, no matter how small it may be or how large it may be, if you never forget that fact that you're always leading and you're always providing influence and that the best thing you'll ever do is master yourself and, and, and provide self-leadership and self-awareness and the, and the virtues and the values and the principles that you model, that therefore you can have an impact. And at that, that point in time, don't worry about whether it's maximal impact, just impact the area in which you have influence. Yeah, that's great. I, and it reminds me of a time of a young man that was working for me, and he came into my office real frustrated, and, and he was a, a, a project manager or a program manager of a team, and he was matrixed out to me, so he was, he was farmed out to another team, but he reported I was accountable for him. And he was frustrated because he felt like no one was listening to him. He was stuck in the middle. And he had unrealistic expectations up from above, and he had to support the people that he was accountable, his team, the people that were below him. And he was in a very tough situation. And he was very exasperated. He says, they're not listening to me. Don't they see that that's not the light, as he put it, that's not the light at the end of the tunnel. That's a train coming down the track, and they're not listening to me. And I told him of an analogy, like a picture that, you know, young first lieutenant who's you know, either on the invasion of Normandy on those Higgins boats, he's been in England for a year and a half, he sees that you know, he's frustrated, he's missing his wife, he's never seen his kid that was born, um, you know, he, he knows that the only way he's going to get home is if Hitler's defeated, and, and he's dejected, and he's demoralized, or not. He, you know, he knows that they need winter gear for the fight in the Ardennes for, forest, but no one's listening to him, and so there he is on the Higgins boat, you know, waiting to storm ashore, and all he's thinking about are those things he can't affect. And what he can affect, though, is everybody else in the boat. You know, Schmitty to the left of him, right. you know, is losing his mind. Right. The guy to the right of him doesn't have his shoes tied, doesn't have, you know, the ammo in his clip. And right. you have to, as a leader, remove yourself from, yeah, you're right. It's true. It sucks that you're in the boat. You're, you might die. You might never see your wife again. You're in a horrible situation. But if you look to the left or the right and behind you, you can't affect the life of those people. And that's really what you got to focus on. So that's really what you're getting at. Right, a absolutely. Well, and, and so much of it um, is tied to, to again, I, I, I think of them as, um, 
well, they're facts, but they're just trans, they're transcendent truths about leadership. And, and you know, one of them is that we mentioned a few before about the fact that um, you know you're always leading in the sense you're always influencing, but that that leadership is always a human act, if you will, and it's always a social context in in the sense that. And, and I think this becomes, it, it is so true and it's so basic, but I think that we always have to remind um, people uh, and those we teach and train and, and mentor as is a growing and emerging leaders of that fact that no matter how technologically advanced our society becomes or the workplace becomes, um, no, no matter how mechanistic, that leadership will never change in, the, in that sense that it is a it's, it's a purely human act and the, that therefore it's all about art and if you will in the sense of the human dynamic and and um, the human elements of um, of that interaction and I, th- I think today what we what I find interesting is particularly when I talk, talk to a younger audience is that they they're actually, uh, if you will, happy to hear that human, the human part of leadership still matters, but they don't, like in other words, when I talk to young students in, say, business classes, they don't get any of that. In other words, what they're increasingly getting are the the, the tools and what you might call the managerial science part of leadership, but they're not getting that good, solid grounding in, in the human aspect that will never change, you know, that will never go away. Um and I, I agree with it. It's 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 that is the part of the what I call the leadership magic. It's the, it's always the human part it, that will never be replaced with technology. Um, it, so it is at once both the most difficult thing to master, but at the same time, it's the most essential thing to master is the human the human dynamic and the human element of leadership. Yeah, and I think that's what the Marine Corps did so well. You know, for two hundred and thirty plus years. That's what they're good at from day one. I mean, the moment you stepped on the, off that bus, you didn't realize right. it at the time, but it it was always about from day one taking care of your folks. I mean, that was the most fundamental and setting the example. All those basic truths and principles. And over time, I see that you're right as you as you pointed out. They're not things the Marine Corps invented. They're not something a business or Harvard invented. These are timeless principles that just exist, and they are truths that are there for us to discover. And uh, right. and I guess that's one thing I I didn't really get that until I got out of the Marine Corps. I don't know at what point that kind of you know that it kind of hit you. I know early on you're just trying to figure out to get through your MOS school and you get in the fleet. But over time, when you look back at it, it really was. And I've said this in a couple other interviews too. Everybody thinks, oh, the Marine Corps. It's the perception of this, you know square-jawed, larger-than-life, booming voice. But some of the greatest leaders that I've come across were those that you know, truly led from the heart, were very emotional. Not Help me out with this. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen that in some of those great leaders in the Marine Corps? I've seen some bad ones, and I've seen some great ones, and the great ones were very in tune with the emotional side, with the love, with the heart, with that human connection piece. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh well, you know, if you if you accept, which I do too, that um, the, probably the the least important attribute of a great leader is uh, either physical size, uh, which or physical intimidation, 
or uh, you know any kind of what you might call force or coercion towards leadership. And I agree with that. It's I mean in in the modern parlance, if you will, it's it's emotional intelligence. Uh, we never called it emotional intelligence, though we understood what it was, which is which was simply to me again. It goes back to all great leadership starts with self leadership, which is self mastery, right? Self awareness, knowing yourself, knowing your your principles, you know, aligning. That you know, that's to me is what integrity is not telling the truth. Integrity is aligning yourself so that who you see yourself as and how others see you is the same person. In other words, that you're just true to yourself and you're you're there's a confidence and trust and trustworthiness in who you are. And and you're right, it's not about bluster and it's not about, you know, pounding or what I might might call the tactical application of leadership as we know from our own experience as would anybody really uh, that when you're in a tactical situation that requires a certain style of leadership let's right. call it where we would have you know raised our hand overhead uh, and said follow me across a, a contested street um, under fire that requires a certain kind type of tactical leadership but that is such a which you might call a, an exceptional period. Most of the leadership influence is done in a in a non-crisis atmosphere, which means that teaching and mentoring and the, the knowledge transfer and the setting of example is done um, mostly non-verbally. Yeah. And so, therefore, I agree with you. I think most great leadership is not done through coercion or force. It's done through modeling and example and the setting and attainment of very high standards um, and, and so that people understand why those standards matter. And you're right. The, what, the thing that the Marine Corps has absolutely mastered um, is the alignment of a very, very... Um, resonant leadership style. In other words, where we were taught, just like you said, from day one, that there's a difference between leading and managing. Right? Yeah. They're both necessary, and they both exist, but there's a very distinct difference between leading and managing. And I always frame it up to keep it as simple as I can for people I talk to is you lead people and you manage things. Right. And if we remember that, we will never confuse them. But I think that going back to your original point about you know, one of the masterful things that the Marine Corps does is it's it's got that core ethos, um, if you will, that infuses everybody that walks across or walks across those yellow footprints and, and goes through that transformative process is it ties us to a common experience, what, what I call perennial knowledge, so that every generation of Marine is tied to the same essential backbone of of knowledge and experience, but then what we do is what the Marine Corps does, I think, beautifully is it teaches leadership and it creates an expectation of leadership um, that is so demanding uh, and so pure, and that's what we ultimately measure each other again. When you think about it at the peer level, what did we really um, measure each other on? It wasn't a technical skill, like in your case as a pilot, or in my case as either a ground officer or whatever our MOS would have been. It was how well uh, we led. Yep. And, and that is masterful because, again, that expectation and that common expectation um, creates that climate and that atmosphere that basically says no matter what you do, the most important thing you will ever do uh, is lead and lead well. And I think that kind of alignment um, is so difficult to build, and that's why there aren't hundreds of Marine Corps. There's one, right. uh, and you now there's other organizations that achieve it, but it's that it's that slow, steady 
and and honest building of an ethos, and then the alignment of leadership expectations to that ethos that creates cohesion. That's what continuity is. That's why, like you said, and I and I actually um, make this point when I teach is that you could have grabbed a group of Marines a hundred years ago and and written on a blackboard three or four elements of the Marine Corps' ethos, marksmanship, physical fitness, you know, leadership, um, expeditionary mindset, a naval character, and showed that same list of Marines today, and then similarly showed that same list of Marines a hundred years from now, and they would all understand it. Yeah. You know, unfailingly. And that's that that symmetry and that cohesion across time points to, again, that the, the real strength of what I would call the difference between good to great, which is ethos. The, the, the organizations that sustain over time and remain excellent over time, to me, if you, had to, if you ever had to distill it down to a single thing, it's ethos, and it's the alignment of people, performance, uh, planning, and, and, and expectations to that, to that ethos. That's what gets great performance over an extended period of time. You've seen a lot of businesses. You've been in contact with with many. Do you feel there is a leadership crisis? Are we in a positive trend, a negative trend? What do you see out there? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually think, like uh, like all things, nothing is as bad or as good as it seems. Um, what I've picked up on, if I can call them common themes, is there seems to be, and I think I know why, I mean, at least it's my theory, is that there seems to be an increasing hunger for, again, if you, if you will accept like I do, that leadership, if you laid it out in a continuum, right, that, to the, if you will, the left element of the continuum is what I call leadership art. All of those things, you know, self-leadership, leadership of people, leadership of the organization, but the art part of leadership, and then as you move across to the right, it starts to transition into what I would call managerial science. But what I find is that what every group I talk to, almost regardless of its demographic makeup, the hunger seems to be not for the right side, in other words, the which is kind of almost counterintuitive because on the one hand, again, all of the um, business management tools, this, this explosion in digital technology and information management tools is in, in one case is very mesmerizing and it's fascinating how, how quickly it's developing and what the capacity of these tools are. But I get the sense when I talk to people is they almost feel overwhelmed by all of it and it is not satisfying and that there seems to be this increasing hunger for help me master and help me understand the more ancient aspect of the art of leadership. Because again, I believe that the fascination with the right side of that continuum, the tools and all of this technology is in a sense creating this illusion as if you can replace the art with the tool. And, and, and everywhere I go, when I present topics of, and then I offer them a choice, what would you like to talk about today? Almost without fail, they move to the left side of the continuum and they, yeah. want, to, they want to have a discussion about those mysterious parts of leadership, uh, which is all art, which I find very fascinating. So that what that tells me, um, just as an observer, is that um, those, again, those classic, transcendent, timeless truths are, as we know, never will be replaced and never go out of vogue, but I believe 
by virtue of this hunger I see for talking about those things and having them, if you will, help people rediscover them, seems to be the, the paramount and principal thing that they're interested in talking about, which, again, is somewhat um, uh, counterintuitive, because you'd think that what they want to talk about is all of this amazing, sexy technology, but I, the, the sense of the clear sense I get is that they almost see that as overwhelming and almost it's creating this illusion, again, that, uh, you know, they're being... Um, or it's being implied to them that hey, you can you can lead through technology, and I think what they realize intuitively is I can't because I'm not connecting with people. So they're kind of saying to me, help me understand and master the left side of that continuum, which is all art. Yeah, no, I've seen the same thing. I would agree with you. There's a there's a hunger for common sense for uh, the basics, and you're right, the truths. And, and what's amazing to me when you spell out those truths, they are so fundamental, they're basic, you've heard them all. You see them on a list, you think, oh yeah, well that makes common sense, but they're not common practice. And and it's I'm still I'm still chewing through why it isn't common practice. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it does take courage a lot of times to do those common sense things. It takes courage to to it's a lot of let's be honest, sometimes those common sense things are in direct violation with what we what the process is, what the regulation is, what the rule is, maybe even what the law is. Right. But but the common sense solution is always the best solution. It's just I'm still chewing through why it isn't right. more common practice. Well, yeah, I, a couple of thoughts, Rich, because I, I agree with it. I, I think part of it is human nature because let's face it, we particularly, if you will, the the, the West, if I can use that term, the Western construct of um, empirical uh, fact-based analysis and you know rationalizing and and the fact that that we believe math over intuition you know what i mean we yeah. we, we have a tendency to believe that something more sophisticated and complex is more trustworthy than something that is more basic and intuitive. That's our human nature, particularly the western mind if you will, yeah. the way that we were brought up to to believe that um Again, complexity is more important than simplicity. So some of it is human nature. And again, I, I, I really believe, too, that a lot of it is just um, the wave uh, of development in modern society with technology. And again, it's creating a, sh- a shimmer effect, if you will, where um, there's this tendency to think that it, that tools will, will provide the answer that we, in other words, where efficiencies become more important than effectiveness. And let's face it, effectiveness is the far more difficult thing to ever pursue oh, yeah. because it it defies instant gratification, right? Yeah. And we live in a society that increasingly demands instant gratification. And uh, again, one of, the, one of the things I like to point out when I talk about leadership up front is that great leadership will always defy instant gratification uh, because... Uh, again, the, the the process is is inherently um, a lengthy one because again, any like any pursuit of true mastery, um, w- which is based on wisdom, wisdom does not come easily. Wisdom only comes through a lot of time and trial, test, oftentimes failure. So I think a lot of it again is is not only human nature, and that's again what why there when we say great leadership, um, not everyone rises to that level because it, it, like you said, it requires us to defy, in some cases, elements of our human nature that want instant answers. We want to have 
problems reduced to a menu um, that we can quickly memorize, and great leadership just defies all that because yeah. it, it doesn't follow that same path. Yeah. Okay. But you know what? You know, just if you if you don't mind, because I think this is really important, though, and this is what I try to always remember is though though what a lot of what you and I agree is true, and I absolutely believe it is. I, I don't think it's contestable that the truths about leadership have always been known, or they've been known, you know, for 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 a long, long time. Um, and and though those things that work and um, resonate were known. And, and, and what we have to do, though, is we have to rediscover them every generation, I believe. But, but here's the key, is you then have to take those truths and recast them in a modern light. Yeah. Because, you know, this is what I try to remember, is the last thing, if you will, the current generation wants to hear is that the good old days were better. In other yeah. words, where, you know, what we what I try to remember is I take the truths, if you will, which we've known forever, uh, but I try to always recast it in modern light, so that when I'm presenting it to a to an audience, I'm not trying to suggest to them that the good old days were better and that the old gen the older generation knew something that you don't. Now, what I try to say to them is, you are the next great generation. There's yeah. no such thing as the greatest generation. You are the next great generation. You just have to rediscover, you know, on your own leadership development path. You have to just rediscover. That's what all heroes do. They yeah. rediscover truth. And then they recast it in the context of their own life and their own uh, society and their own challenges, so that it may look slightly different, but the core principle is the same. So I think that's key, though, is to never present these truths as, you know, an old truth and let's go back, because you can't beat the drum backwards. It always has to move forward, because that's the direction that the universe goes, is forward, you know, not backward. Well said, and I don't think anybody, you're right, you, you, leadership isn't, about lecturing, about this is how it needs to be because the good old days. It is a lifelong journey for all of right. us. It's a lifelong process. You never fully arrive right. as a leader. It just it's it's a never ending process, and you're, and it it's a handing down or a passing down to the next generation these truths, as you say. Yeah. Um, right. that's, that's great stuff. Where can people find you? As we got to wrap up here. Where where can people find you, and uh, where can they learn more about the Callan course? Yeah, sure. Uh, and thanks for that uh, ability to talk about the course. Um, the, the, the first, just the, the factual points, if you will. The, the website, uh, people would like to get on our website. It's uh, www.calencourse.com. Uh, no space there, just calencourse.com. And uh, uh, my partners, uh, Jen and Kim, did a great job building the website to make it uh, easy to navigate mm -hmm. and uh, hopefully very logical. And uh, all of the key information about the course and you know kind of what our what our mission is and what our objectives are uh all the way through you know some of the just the very practical considerations in terms of um you know how we uh, the pa how we package the course and how we offer it and, and what we can do is all is all on the website uh, like i said we're located out here in san diego and uh but we travel anywhere that uh you know that are that are a training opportunity uh takes us, whether that be, you know, a seminar, a lecture. We do some curriculum work uh, with some uh, colleges and universities. Um, so everything's there on the website. And I think uh, just keep it simple. If they went to the website, they could find everything that they needed and uh, um, and definitely uh, would would uh, 
welcome you know any communication with folks, whether that just be at the uh, peer level and other, other folks that are involved in leadership and uh, leadership development and training and hearing what other people do, and uh, also uh, any any people that are just looking for um, any any kind of help or guidance or mentorship when it comes uh, to leadership. Perfect. Paul, it's been a true privilege and an honor to have you on the show today. I look forward to talking again. We'll have you back again. There's so many other things I want to talk to you about. And um, would you be willing to come back? I would love to, Rich. And uh, anytime you want to, like I said, uh, call and uh, over a cup of coffee, talk about leadership, you can count me in. Definitely. Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Rich, and uh, have a great day, and uh, hunker down there in the Midwest yeah. while we're enjoying the sun out here oh, in San Diego. I told you not to mention it again. All right. Thanks, yeah. Paul. <laughs> okay, Rich. Have a great day. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.